You may be seated. If you have your copy of God's Word, I would invite you to turn with me to the book of Nahum. The book of Nahum. Nahum is in the Minor Prophets, buried there towards the end of the Old Testament. We'll be at Nahum chapter 1 this morning. If you work at hunting up the statistics, you will find that the Christian church is one of, if not the most, persecuted group in the world today. In fact, since the coming of Christ, the church has always at times suffered under persecution, but in many ways it is at its peak in undergoing those things today. In the last 100 years, I've shared this before, in the last 100 years, the church has seen the death and persecution of more Christian martyrs than the previous 1900 years combined. So add up all the people that have died, not just because they got caught up in, 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 uh, in war or anything else, but specifically those that have died because they have been God's people. Add all them up, the first 1900 years of church history, and it still is less than what has perished in the last 100 years. More than 26 million, docu- there have been more than 26 million documented cases of martyrdom in the last 100 years alone. More than 200 million Christians in over 60 nations face persecution each day. 60% of those people are children. It's estimated that 150,000 Christians are killed each year for no reason other than they worship the risen Christ. Now we sit here and I hope that many of us will think something along the lines of that that's terrible. Uh, it's a real shame. But the reality is very often uh, of, of all of us, some of us will hear that and we'll begin to commit to pray for those people. Not all of us statistically, but some of us will. Still yet fewer of us will commit to supporting financially or at least being involved with ministries like Voice of the Martyrs that seeks to minister to those undergoing persecution. But for the most part, without a constant reminder of what is going on, we just don't think about it. We just don't think about it. Not because we don't necessarily care, but because it seems so far removed from us in the United States and in our way of life. There could be people out in India or China or parts of Africa undergoing things, but that seems so far away from us even in this global age. But think about this. What if it was Christians in Canada? What if it was Christians in Canada being slaughtered on a daily basis simply because they profess the name of Christ? What if it was Southern Baptists Christians in Canada? Would, would that make a difference in the stirring of your heart? Would it make a difference in terms of the priority of your thinking? What if it wasn't in Canada? What if it was in the United States and it was your own extended family? Would that begin then to move your heart and your mind in different ways? Well, if it would, then we're getting pretty close to the situation in which Nahum is writing. He is writing with, uh, in the midst of a situation very similar to this, Assyria for the last several years has been chipping away at God's people at the borders of the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And now they have come in and they have laid siege to the northern kingdom. And in, in, in just a few short years, ten tribes, the majority of God's people Israel that He redeemed out of Egypt and brought through the wilderness and has sustained for these many years in grace, they have effectively been wiped out. 
Ten tribes gone. And now Assyria looms at their doorstep as well. So there are those that are left behind in the northern kingdom. There are those in the southern kingdom of Judah that have remained faithful to God. What are they thinking about these things? What are they thinking about what has happened to their fellow countrymen, those that would even in word claim the name of God as their God? After all, they were supposed to be His people. They were supposed to enjoy divine favor and protection. Yes, they had sinned. And judgment has come upon them, and yet those that were used as the instrument of judgment, the Assyrians, were far more wicked than Israel ever was. Through Isaiah, God said very specifically, Ah, Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send them, and against the people of my wrath I command them to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God rightly punished His people and He used Assyria to do it. But now what about Assyria? Shouldn't they also be punished for their wickedness? Is there justice in God? Is God still sovereign over the nations as He has claimed to be? Is He still a good God? These are all the kinds of questions that are running through the minds of what's left of God's people. And it is to these questions that God sends the prophet Nahum with a message. Here God writes to His people to tell them of the coming judgment on Assyria now. And in that way, in knowing the certainty of God's judgment against their wickedness and their evil, God's people were to take comfort. They were to take comfort in that. You see, one of the most interesting things about Nahum uh, is that he's different from all the other prophets in the Old Testament. I heard one uh, pastor this week say that he was uh, the Dennis Rodman of the, of the prophets. Now, some of you know Dennis Rodman. Basically, he had, from what I understand, one job on the team, and that was get rebounds. And that was it. Um, not necessarily you tell God that could do everything. Likewise, Nahum only has one function. All the other prophets say, you are being condemned and judged for your sin, and yet God will preserve you. And here Nahum says nothing about the sins of God's people. The message is not one of condemnation. The message here is one of comfort. In fact, Nahum's very name means comforted. And he is comforting God's people with this message. God will destroy your enemies. And in destroying your enemies, he will also save you for himself. God is sovereign. God is just. God is good. And that is what we want to see this morning from Nahum, hopefully finding our hearts likewise comforted. I invite you to follow along as we begin reading at verse 1 of Nahum chapter 1. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on His adversaries and keeps wrath for His enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of His feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. 
He knows those whom take refuge in Him. But with an overflowing flood, He will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue His enemies into darkness. This is the Word of God. Notice the opening line of the book, an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now, if you remember, we've already looked at Nineveh, haven't we? In fact, you've probably looked at Nineveh if you've grown up in church every couple of years because that's where the, book, uh, the events in the book of Jonah take place. And you'll remember in Jonah, God sent his prophet to this pagan people to warn them, to tell them that unless they repented and turned from their wickedness, judgment would come upon them. Nineveh being the capital city of Assyria, in in many ways the the epitome of the wickedness of Assyria. And Jonah didn't want to go. In fact, he went the opposite direction. And uh, and God still saved him from dying in the sea by having him uh, swallowed up by a fish and then spit back out on the shores of Nineveh. And so he went very reluctantly and he preached repentance to the Ninevites and they repented. They turned towards the living God. They turned away from their sinfulness and followed after him, and they were spared judgment. But that was 150 years ago. The work that was done through Jonah was 150 years ago. There's a whole new generation now, at least one. There's a whole new king, and there's a whole new level of Nineveh's depravity and wickedness. They very quickly, though being spared by God's mercy, forgot God and his ways and stopped having anything at all to do with him. They have instead delighted in their sin, but their sin has not gone unnoticed by God. Because of their evil deeds, judgment is coming upon them again. And that's the message. Judgment is coming to Assyria. That's the message that was given by Nahum to God's people in order to comfort them in order to comfort them it was a message of comfort based on God's just character and his sovereign actions and so again as we seek to unpack Nahum today we want to see how it is that we ourselves can be comforted by the reality that God is a God not just of goodness and of love but of holiness and judgment and basically there are two things we want to see from Nahum this morning first We need to take comfort because God judges evil. We need to take comfort that God judges evil. The verses that we have just read, verses 1 through 8, serve as an opening psalm for the book of Nahum. And it's here in this psalm that the character of God is put on display. And so as we see him judging sin, we see uh, two things that affect the way uh, he he judges wickedness. First of all, God judges sin or judges evil uh, according to his character. It's according to his character. We read this, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is vengeful and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now, what is Nahum talking about here? I mean, that's not really not something we sing a lot on Sunday mornings. We don't sing, our God is an avenging God. Our God is a God of wrath. He'll wipe out the enemies. We just don't sing that, do we? Okay, uh, but you know what Israel did? I mean, we read that in the Psalms, don't we? And, and they would have sung those things. In fact, the, 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 there's a certain tradition, particularly among the Scottish church, where they sing nothing but the hymns uh, rearranged in meter. So that way, uh, they basically have just a couple, a handful of tunes and any of these Psalms they can pick up. And there were some people... Um, the covenanters who held fast to uh, what they thought was biblical doctrine and they were being literally uh, wiped out by other so-called Christians. 
And as they knew the battle was coming, they would take comfort in psalms like this, singing to one another to bolster themselves. Our God is by our side. Our God will go and defeat our enemies for us. So what is this talking about here? God is jealous and avenging. He's wrathful. He takes vengeance on adversaries. Well, first of all, you need to understand that God is jealous, not in the kind of capricious way that we often think of in terms of jealousy. I tell my kids, don't be jealous of your brother. Don't be jealous of your sister. Is that the same kind of jealousy that, that Nahum is talking about here? No, absolutely not. It is the kind of uh, jealousy, a kind of good and, and righteous jealousy that a husband would have for the affections of his wife. God does not want anyone going after any other false gods the same way a husband doesn't want his, doesn't want his wife to go after other men. Okay, In that sense, it is, a, uh, it is an appropriate sense of jealousy for the worship of his people. Worshiping something or someone other than God only produces sin and misery. So in that sense, God's jealousy is not just right, it's good. It's good for his people. Intrinsically, it is sin not to give God the honor that he deserves. Paul says that in Romans 1, but more than that, in not knowing God and not being rightly related to him and not worshiping him and him alone, our hearts are free to increase in sin and we simply heap judgment on our heads. The response to such a life as that, one of neglect of God, is his vengeful wrath. Out of his holiness, God will judge sin. But more than that, you need to understand God is very clear, not just here but throughout the Bible. He will not just judge evil and sin and wickedness. He will judge those who are evil, those who are wicked. He will judge sinners. See, it's very popular today, isn't it, to say something along the lines of, well, God hates the sin but loves the sinner. Or Christians should hate the sin but love the sinner. Well, that's, a, that's half right. Okay? Specifically for us, yes, we don't look at someone who is sinning and hate them individually for their sin. But we're also not God. God does not, God does not pour out His wrath in the abstract because sin is personal. God is personal. So when someone sins against God, they are sinning against a person, not just an abstraction. It's not just some kind of vague evil against some kind of vague good. It's as if you're walking up, uh, taking off the glove, and slapping it across Jesus' face. That's, that's sin. And so therefore, God is very clear that it is sinners that He will judge. He talks about adversaries and he talks about enemies. These are not, again, abstractions. These are individuals. And in fact, you get to chapter 2 and you read what is perhaps, at least to me, the most terrifying verse in all of the scriptures. Chapter 2, verse 13. Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. That's a frightening thing to hear said against you. In this book, it's Assyria that stands as God's enemy because of their sin. We're told many times the wickedness of this people. In fact, just read through chapter 3 and you get a whole catalog of their things. But consider this. God says to them in the opening verses of chapter 3, Woe to the bloody city, all full of lies and plunder, no end to the prey. The crack of the whip and the rumble of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariot, horsemen charging, flashing sword and glittering spear, hosts of slain, heaping of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over the bodies. And all for the countless whorings of the prostitute, graceful and of deadly charms to betray nations with her whorings and peoples with her charms. 
murder, slavery, cruelty, prostitution. This wicked nation stands the representative for all sinners to whom the Lord will be an avenging and wrathful God and will by no means clear the guilty. That is the result of his just character. He will judge evil. He will avenge sin. But that's not all we see in his character. Despite the reality of God's determination to pass judgment on evil, on those who are workers of sin, notice what verse 3 says. The Lord is slow to anger. Now you think about, frankly, the kind of language that has just been given about God being wrath, wrathful, and avenging, exercising vengeance on sinners. And yet here it says, God is slow to anger. Here's the reality of who God is then. He is a God who takes sin seriously, but He is also a God who is patient with sinners. You think about it, there is a real sense in which uh, there shouldn't be anybody living today. I mean, the minute you wake up out of bed and you sin, boom, God has every right for the lightning to hit your house, for the meteor to come down through the roof, for, you know, the truck to go off the side of the road and it's back, however he decides to do it. Perhaps just you vaporize in the nothingness. God has every right to pour out his wrath against your sin right there and right then. But we're all still here, aren't we? We're all still here. In fact, Paul says in Romans that God could have wiped out humanity and been perfectly just years ago. But in his divine forbearance, he passed over those sins because he knew that Christ was coming. God is both justly, rightly, a holy God, full of wrath and vengeance, but he is also a God who is patient with sinners. He is patient with them, allowing them the opportunity to turn and repent from their sins before His wrath comes upon them. When we think about these things, then what we have is a view of God that stands in direct contrast to what much of society believes about who God is. In fact, I would say it stands in contrast to what many professing Christians believe God is like. We see here a God who at his very essence of his character is one who will, who will not let sin go unpunished. Yet at the same time, his punishment does not arise from some petty, you hurt my feelings response in his heart. You've not bruised God's ego. You've not wounded him emotionally. This is why we are told not to seek vengeance, but let the Lord seek vengeance. Why? Because we're capricious about it. You say, you say something mean about me, what am I going to do? Boom, I want to slug you. Or, in our culture, we just zip off the one-liner and just cut them down like they're nothing. That's why God says, no, 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 you don't do it. Because you're a sinner, and in your sin, you will give vengeance that is not appropriate. You let me be the avenger. Why? Because the vengeance, the wrath that is coming is not from uncontrolled anger, but from an unchanging character. The result of this is found in verse 3. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. God judges sin according to his character, but he also judges sin according to his sovereignty. That's the other thing that we see about God's judgment of sin in these verses. When you read the commentaries, the Hebrew scholars will tell you that Nahum provides some of the most uh, artistic poetry in all of the Old Testament. It's beautiful poetry, they say, but it's war poetry. It's war poetry. Listen again to what it says. 
His way is in whirlwind and storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He drives up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. What do we have going on here? Well, does it remind you of something else? Perhaps Genesis 1, where God lays all these things out and He speaks creation into existence? What, what Nahum is, is, is proclaiming God for is simply this. The one who created can uncreate. The one who took chaos and brought order to it and beauty and goodness. God can reverse all of that. So who is the one who formed the seas? He is also the one who could dry them up. Who is the one who established the fruitfulness of cities like Bashan and Carmel? The one who grew up the strong cedar trees in Lebanon? He is also the one that could cause the vegetation to wither and the cedars to fall. Therefore, Nahum is right to ask, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? The answer is no one. No one. For his wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Thus the prophet says in verse 8, With an overwhelming flood, he will make a complete end of the adversaries and will pursue his enemies into darkness. When the sovereign Lord comes against you in judgment, there is nothing that can stop him. Anyone who is older than 15 here this morning surely remembers what 9-11 was like, what September 11th was like. And there could be lots of reasons why you remember it. It could be because of the, the, the just endless news coverage. You just saw those images over and over and over again. They were literally burned into your mind if you had the television on. It could have been thinking about just the sheer audacity of the attack and, and that no one ever saw such a thing coming. It could have been the, the pointless lives that were lost to uh, these wicked men who, who brought this thing upon us. But at the end of the day, all of those things come together to say that really 9-11, 9-11 is remembered for one thing and one thing only. On that day, the mighty fell. See, the United States, even today, we are the only remaining superpower. We've outlasted everybody else. We've outproduced them. We've outfought them. We've out-economized them. All of the other people that were at one time world powers are gone. You have others that are rising up like China, but but we still far surpass them. But on that day, on September 11, 2001, none of of any of that mattered. We were beating all the wealth, all the power, all of our political clout. Nothing mattered that morning. We were no better than a third world country that day because we were caught off guard. We were attacked. We were brought low. Our country virtually ground to a standstill on that day. As powerful as we were, it meant nothing in light of those acts of terrorism. Likewise, in its day, Assyria was the superpower. Yes, there were other large nations all around that area, but compared to Assyria, there were none. Its capital, Nineveh, was the seat of power in the ancient Near East, and God says, none of that matters. None of that matters. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, Assyria. It doesn't matter how large your standing armies are. It doesn't matter how many chariots you have. It doesn't matter how bloodthirsty you are in war. I am coming against you in all of my sovereign power, and you will not be able to stand against me. Later in chapter 1, Nahum says, The judgment of the Lord will leave them like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. 
They might run around and try and defend themselves, but they will be like tangled vines, unable to escape the judgment. They will be like drunk men out partying and having a good time and become so smashed that they don't see the Hummer barreling down the road as they step off into the streets. They are like the brush of the wilderness that has seen no rain for several weeks, dry and brittle. It is ready to go up in a whoosh of flame the second the match is dropped in the pile. God says in verse 14, The Lord has given commandment about you, Nineveh. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. God says, so furious will be my wrath, there will be nothing left of you when I am done. Just a few decades after this book was written and preached to God's people, Nineveh fell in 612 B.C. God raised up the Babylonians to fulfill His prophetic word against Assyria. In fact, so devastating was the destruction of Nineveh that for, almost, for, for over 2,000 years, Nineveh was lost. Nobody knew where it was. You have people throughout history looking at the Bible. They're looking at the Babylonian histories. and They say, we know there was this place called Nineveh. We know it's somewhere out there, but we can't find it. And then eventually, archaeologists discovered the city of Nineveh in 1842. And their plan was to do a massive excavation, to remove every bit of dirt and to, to lift up the ruins of this once great city out of the dust and the sand. And guess what they discovered? It's not worth it. Nineveh was so totally devastated, there was nothing left. It was a waste of money to try and unbury all of the rubble. God judges sin. God judges wickedness and evil. The question is, do you find comfort in this or does it frighten you? Does it do both? Truth be told, your response to that kind of message depends on your relationship to God. Those who know God can find comfort in that. They can find comfort that God will judge sin because they also know that God delivers from evil. We can take comfort because God delivers from evil. In the midst of this very clear image of God who makes war against sin, there is this hope. Verse 7, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in Him. Here's the reality of who God is. In judging sin and evil, the Lord also saves His people. Though Judah had been oppressed by this wicked nation of Syria, He would not only judge that nation, but save His own. He both destroyed Assyria and preserved Judah and what was left of Israel. Later in verses 12 through 13, God says about Judah's enemies, Though they are at full strength in many... They will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. Despite their overwhelming numbers and their enormous strength, Assyria will fall. And he says, it's like an animal who has been burdened with a weight and it is, it is, the chains are snapped and the burden is thrown off. It will be gone. No more will this oppression exist. In fact, God goes on to command His people in verse 15 saying, Behold upon the mountains the feet of Him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Try and put yourself in the sandals of a Judean during Naaman's day. This wasn't the day like today of instant communication. 
You send a text, a fax, an email, you got it, it's there, it's done. That, we know that just wasn't like that back then. If you wanted to send a message to someone, it was, it was either verbally delivered or hand-delivered. You know what that meant? A lot of walking or a lot of riding. Horses, camels, worn-out sandals, whatever it is, communication was slower in that day, such that there could be a battle raging just a mile or two away. And if it was obscured from your vision, you could have no idea what was going on. The fate of your entire civilization can hang on a battle that you may not hear about until the victors came marching through your town. So you can imagine the situation. You've heard all ten tribes that were once the nation of Israel has been wiped out, gone. Just a few stragglers left. They've even been killed or carried off into obscurity through slavery, never to be heard of again. You, the remaining two tribes are left in Judah, and yet Assyria is continually encroaching just a little bit more and a little bit more on your borders. And you're wondering what is going to happen. Is Assyria going to come in? Are they going to be the end of your life? And one day as you are out in the field, perhaps looking to your livestock or playing with your kids, you see a runner, a messenger up on the ridge of the mountain line. And you begin to wait. Because you have no idea what kind of news this messenger brings. Is it news of a battle? Did the Assyrian forces finally invade and take out Jerusalem? And are they now on their way to take out you? And so you're watching this messenger across the ridgeline and perhaps against the, the oppressive midday sun and heat, you, you put your hands up to get a, a clear picture of this guy coming. And he's now come down from the mountains and he's down into the valley and you're, you're still squinting, you're trying, he still seems like there's a dot on the horizon. But anything in his face that might give away what kind of news he brings, you are seeking for it. At this point, your family has noticed that, 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 that you're not just, you're focused over here. So now the family gathers around and you're wondering, are you going to tell them to take what they can get and to, to flee into the, the wilderness or, or what is going to come? And though you cannot see his face, you cannot read his emotion, you hear yelling, echoing throughout the valley, good news, peace, peace. This is the message that comes. God says to his people, I will defeat Assyria and there will be peace for my people. Take comfort that in my judgment of evil, I am also preserving you. But here's the question that we have to ask. If God is the one who judges evil, how can he preserve his people? If God is the one who judges wickedness and sin, how can He spare His people? God has already said uh, that, that he, would not, he, would not, uh, he would not declare uh, the wicked righteous, that He would not pass judgment over them. So the question is, the question is, how, are, how can God do this? How can He be just? Isn't He talking out both sides of His mouth? He's just preserving His people, but He's destroying these others when they're all wicked. The theme of the Bible, the verdict is in. None are righteous. No, not one. Not the Assyrians, not the Babylonians, and not the Judeans that God is saving. So how can He save them? How can He, how can he pass over them? How can He tell them, go on, enjoy, keep your feasts, the feast of the covenant, fulfill your vows of thanksgiving and sacrifice, worship the way you're supposed to. How can he not also say to them, I stand against you, declares the Lord of hosts. How can he do this? 
The answer to this question is the cross. The answer is found in Jesus Christ. For when Christ came, He came declaring good news, the gospel writers tell us. Good news, why? Because peace was about to come between God and sinners. All of the patiently waiting, all of God holding back His wrath and not giving people what they deserved, even His own people, was about to come to fruition. The reason for that patience was about to be revealed through a Roman cross. For this is the irony of the cross. There on that wood hung the one and only person throughout history who never should have hung there. The one person who had never sinned. The one person who never disobeyed parents. The one person who never had a lustful thought against a woman. The one person who never thought uh, vile, angry thoughts in a person who they thought was wrong. The person who never was bitter. A person who never missed prayers, not because they were tired or hungry, but because they loved God so much. The one true righteous person. And he was killed like a common criminal. Not just by the Romans but by God himself. For it was on that cross that the fullness of God's judgment fell. You think what he did to Assyria was bad? You should have been at the foot of the cross. For there the fullness of God's wrath was poured out on sin so that his people could know peace. That peace that was secured through the defeat of God's own son on the cross comes to us when we turn away from doing what we want to we turn away from living like the Assyrians and we trust in Jesus to be our Savior. When we make Him our Master and Lord. Peace then becomes ours. And so Paul can say in Romans 4, this is how God could be both just and the justifier of the wicked. And now we no longer need to hear those wretched, terrifying words from the, the commander of the armies of heaven, I stand against you. No, as many of you have memorized, we can say thou, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Judgment is not coming upon us because God himself bore the punishment for us. Through judgment came peace. Several years ago when Romania was still under communist rule, Stuart Briscoe tells of one Christian pastor there who was talking with some Americans And they were talking about books of the Bible and about God's truth. And the Romanian pastor said, our favorite book is the last one, the book of Revelation. And some of the American pastors said, oh, we love that book too. And went into all kinds of things. And the Romanian said, wait, 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 wait. He said, the reason why we love it and the reason why you like it are not the same. We love it because it was written by the one that Jesus beloved. And yet that beloved was in prison, exiled for the faith in Patmos. We love it because just as we suffer under communist rulers, so John the Apostle who wrote it suffered under the Romans. More than that, it is written to Christians who suffer and know what it means to be persecuted for the faith. And in that book, in Revelation, there is a clear message to God's people. Sin will not go unpunished. Cruelty will not go unjudged. The oppression of God's people will not last forever. Evil will not triumph in the end. He said, we're not obsessed with timelines and details and working out speculations about the future. We're not caught up in trying to figure out where the rapture is so we can escape difficulty and suffering. We are suffering now. But the reason why we love that book is because there is hope. 
God is a just God who judges sin, and yet he also delivers his people. My friends, that's the, that's the message of Nahum. That is the message of Nahum. God will not suffer fools lightly. He will not look past wickedness and sin. He will judge it. And yet even in judging it, he will save his people. And that decisive final act of judgment and peace has come together through the cross of Jesus Christ. For those of you that have trusted in him this morning then, just as Israel was told, go, offer the sacrifices, keep the feasts, Rejoice in your Lord. Likewise for us today. We need not fear God's judgment. We need not have a fear of the future. Evil will one day pass from this scene, never to be remembered again. Never to be remembered again. Wicked men build up all kinds of structures and monuments to their glory of wickedness and God says one day it will be gone. Just as I am wiping the Assyrians and their false gods off the earth, so I will one day wipe all sin away. Therefore, now, even in the midst of difficulty, even in the midst of judgment, we have hope for that day. And therefore, we likewise can offer our own lives as a sacrifice that God desires, as the the thing that He is worthy to receive of our worship. Oh, sovereign God, as we think about this message that you have given to Nahum, a message that for many would stand in such contrast to what they understand about you. Father, far too many people that have claimed your name have have sought to edit out your character. They have sought to lessen what you have proclaimed as true about you and your word. Father, I pray that we will not do that this morning. Father, in the mystery of your providence, as we think about not just the judgment on the final day, but even that judgment brought into the present in times like the destruction of Nineveh and the wiping away of Assyria. Father, we will not see these things as things to be shied away from, as things to be embarrassed about, but, Father, things that will give us hope because it means you judge sin. You're not a fickle God. You're not a weak God. And the same God who can roll back creation itself to do away with sin is the same God who can also deliver His people who do not deserve it. So Father, I pray that these things would comfort our hearts and remind us of who we are in Christ and that God, they would give us hope and confidence as we seek to live lives that are worthy of the name who bought us. It's in that name that we pray, the name of Jesus, our Savior and Lord, the very Master of our lives. Amen.